the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. Amongst all of the issues that are troubling Americans today, and it's a laundry list, terrorism, the economy, unemployment, housing, education. You know what I find interesting? That the number one reported concern amongst residents of the state of New Hampshire is substance abuse. Isn't that interesting? Substance abuse, their number one concern. Apparently rampant taking place, uh, particularly amongst kids. And, of course, when we talk about abuse and addictive behavior, uh, it, it comes in a very broad variety of forms. If I talk to you about addiction, I think a lot of our minds immediately have a picture in our mind of either the hobo on the street that has the alcohol addiction problem or maybe the individual that's, that's dealing with drugs and has a drug addiction problem. But growing percentages of Americans Americans, in addition to dealing with sort of the traditional addiction, so to speak, have a variety of other addictions. And it can be as broad as not just illegal drug addiction, but legal or prescription drug addiction. Then you move into other categories. You think about it from a biblical perspective. There are people that are addicted to food, people that can be addicted to spending, gambling, things of that sort. As we talk about the broad level of addiction and addictive behavior in America today, and by the way, 30% of Americans, one out of three of us, struggles with a form of addiction of one sort or another, you would think perhaps the best place for these people to go would be the church. The church could help them address their addictive behavior. I mean, after all, doesn't the Bible talk about all these topics? Well, it certainly does. And yet, sadly, the church seems to be ill-equipped. It, it almost acts as if we're sort of out of sorts on this topic. And so we feel as if, well, if you come to us with an addictive behavior, we immediately need to give you a referral to AA, Narcotics uh, Anonymous, something of that sort. But could we change the face of addiction if we changed our attitudes about what addiction is within the church. To get some insights now, Jonathan Benz joins us. Jonathan is a clinician. He is a certified professional who serves the recovery community. He is the author of a new book called The Recovery-Minded Church, Loving and Ministering to People with Addiction. And Jonathan, thanks so much for taking time to be with us today. Thank you for having me, Craig. What about this observation? From your perspective, is that a fairly legitimate claim to say that largely the church seems to be kind of awkward at dealing with this topic? I think your comments are spot on, and that's certainly my experience. Uh, having uh, been blessed enough to, to, be, to have been raised in a home and a congregation that was remarkably recovery-friendly, when I started going out on my own, and doing uh, both clinical work and work in the church, discovering that while for decades uh, churches have allowed AA and NA meetings to take place in basements and fellowship halls, most of those people who go to those meetings uh, would not grace the doors of the church for any form of worship or, or participation in Christian community. 
And I think that's largely due to the shame and the stigma that oftentimes addiction carries in the church world. But that's odd, because as I delineated, you know, when we think of addiction, let's let's apply the the more broad definition to it than what seems to be kind of the, the, the narrow traditional approach. Most people, if you say addiction and, and do a word association game, will, you know, say alcohol, drugs, things of that sort. And yet, as we know, both from a scriptural standpoint as well as a clinical standpoint, that there can be all kinds of other dangerous addictive behaviors. I mean, there there are uh, ministries now that are dedicated to do nothing but helping people, for example, that struggle with uh, sexual addictions uh, or gambling addiction. So it seemed to me that, that given the broad nature of this behavior and the fact that <laughs> the Scripture has an awful lot to say about all of them, that if there's any place where we ought to feel welcome, if it were an, an addict ought to feel welcome, it ought to be within, within the church. Well, and one would hope. Uh, it, you know, it's interesting that the American Society of Addiction Medicine defines addiction as a chronic disease of brain reward, motivation, memory, and circuitry. And when the medical community defines addiction, drugs, alcohol, gambling, those things are not mentioned. Those are but symptoms of something else that's going on. So we know that there's something that's happening physiologically in the brain of the individual, and I think sometimes that's the part that uh, we in the church community uh, don't get or don't fully understand. Uh, we think that addiction is something that can be prayed away. And while certainly uh, I believe prayer helps in some form of prayer and meditation, we know through science now definitely helps the brain heal, uh, it takes more than just prayer and Bible study for a person to heal and recover. Uh, it takes some form of medical treatment as well. To a certain degree, then, are some of those behaviors, uh, let's take alcohol. And we know certainly there's a physiological aspect to that addictive behavior, drugs too. Uh, but, but to a great degree, is that oftentimes, and as I think you're suggesting, Jonathan, symptomatic of something deeper going on? Uh, oftentimes, uh, addiction experts will say drugs and alcohol are but a symptom or uh, sexual compulsivity is a symptom of something deeper going on. Now, we, we do know in the case of alcoholism, science tells us that there's a genetic marker for alcoholism. And, you know, we don't quite know if there's a genetic marker for sex addiction yet. Maybe we'll find at some point that there is. But uh, sometimes it's a chicken or egg uh, discussion, you know, which came first. And I often say it doesn't matter whether uh, something of trauma happened that got the person into addiction or they had a genetic marker that led them into addiction. Uh, we we got to treat it. And uh, when we want to treat more than just the symptoms, we want to treat the deeper issues of the psyche or within the Christian context, we would say the soul or the spirit. Now, the church, of course, would typically look at many of these on that laundry list that we mentioned a moment ago and say that, well, the answer, of course, is Christ. And we can help an individual by leading he or she to saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. And once they start attending church, going to Bible study, things of this sort, that uh, most naturally then, that, that life-changing experience, that encounter with Christ, should then address the underlying issues regarding their addiction. And so once they've been able to then, um, through a process of prayer and counseling, things of this sort, overcome that addiction, that they should be done. In other words, there should be no need for ongoing uh, recovery workshops or things of this sort. We oftentimes even hear something, well, people, you know, that once they get through their addictive behavior, then they get addicted to recovery. Is there something wrong with that approach? Well, I, I think if we take that approach, then we should do the same uh, with other diseases, with other disease states. We certainly would never tell the cancer patient to stop her chemotherapy 
or we would never tell a diabetic to, to stop uh, uh, his insulin or watching his sugar levels. Uh, we know that there are certain disease states that are chronic, and apart from some kind of miraculous uh, touch or, or miracle of science, the person will continue to have to treat that for the rest of their life. Uh, so, uh, you know, some people, uh, they struggle and they say, well, it's a sin to be an alcoholic. Well, if that's the case, then perhaps it's a sin to be a diabetic. Uh, you know, we don't stigmatize people who suffer from other disease states that are often characterized by relapse. Um, yet with addiction, we, it is one of the most undertreated uh, issues in our country and one of the most deadly. And I, I think the beauty of the church, uh, when the church wakes up to the realization that, yes, we hold a lot of answers for spiritual healing, for psychological healing, when we practice that with good medicine, that a person can really uh, increase their chances of finding a life that is happy, joyous, and free, as the big book says. Uh, I think when we, when we really grab hold of that, we can begin to see greater transformation in people's lives in our congregations and also create an atmosphere where it's easier for people to talk about these issues that maybe they would be ashamed to even confess. Well, and maybe then, too, the approach needs to be with the understanding that an individual that is struggling with an addiction, while we kind of traditionally think it as an individual who is weak, who doesn't have the the kind of um, will or uh, uh, um, ability with them to, to push themselves back from the table, the drug, the alcohol, whatever, but rather to recognize that in our fallen condition, we are vulnerable to sin. And it is a day-to-day struggle. I mean, if Paul had to struggle daily to die to the flesh, and I I think Paul, both in terms of of his encounter with Jesus Christ on the road to Damascus and the role that he played in the the early church, uh, probably a little little closer, a little deeper understanding uh, of these principles than just the average Christian out on the street who just casually reads Paul's writings, uh, that if we acknowledge the fact that it's a day-to-day struggle and that in and of ourselves we are powerless, but through Christ we can overcome this and, and recognize the fact that it's not necessarily just somebody who's got a weak character, but, but rather it's part of the daily struggle to the flesh. Maybe then this sort of stigma that's attached to addictive behavior by the church would be less so, and as a result, people would be more willing to find the kind of help they need within both Scripture and the church. I, I would concur, and you know, I would go on to say, uh, I would go on to say what I'm not saying, and what I'm not saying is that there are not uh, what we would call simple consequences of addiction. So if if the mother, uh, you know, needs a handle of vodka because she's alcoholic, and she drives to the liquor store, and she leaves her child in the hot car in the car seat, uh, and turns the car off uh, to go in to get her alcohol. And, and the child dies, is that a sin? Definitely there are what we would call within the Christian context sinful consequences or definitely harmful behaviors, destructive behavioral patterns. Uh, but, but I think we have to reframe the conversation, as you're saying, to say, yes, we know that there are these behaviors, there are, pattern, there are patterns of behaviors, and that really uh, there are principles, spiritual principles in the scriptures that can help you break free from those destructive behavioral patterns that actually propagate the addictive cycle in your life. 
Jonathan Benz is with us tonight. We're talking about the recovery-minded church, loving and ministering to people with addiction. We'll take a brief time out to come back to more of the conversation as Lifeline continues. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. All right, we are back with a pretty tight schedule tonight, but we'll see if we can't uh, jump a caller here or two for Jonathan Benz. His new book is called The Recovery-Minded Church, Loving and Ministering to People with Addiction, newly released, by the way, by InterVarsity Press. You can get it at bookstores around the Bay Area, of course, through uh, therecoveryplace.com. Jonathan, let's talk some specifics. When we talk about ways in which the church can do a better job, aside from simply saying, let's open up the church basement and allow AA to hold meetings there, what, from your perspective, do you think the body of Christ can be doing that will create the kind of environment that will allow addicts to feel welcome, number one, inside the church? And then what kind of tools do we need to be equipped with in order to really adequately and and, and appropriately minister to them? Well, I think education is a great place to start. Uh, if, if there are, uh, for example, lay leaders in the congregation who have uh, this kind of passion or who have a particular compassion for people struggling with some kind of addiction, uh, just getting good information uh, and changing the tenor of the conversation within the spiritual community helps. Um, I think being clear that in, in saying and intentional in our message and saying, hey, we want you here. We don't have all the answers, but we're going to help you find the answers that you need. And we're going to journey with you and uh, be on this journey with you to find what you're looking for. And if we can't find it here, we're going to help you find it somewhere. Uh, I think that's what a lot of people are looking for uh, who are struggling with addiction. They don't know where to go. And so there are even practical things that congregations can do. One of the most practical things I say is have a list in your foyer or in your lobby of your church that is a list of uh, community resources, not just numbers for the, the AA intergroup, but also uh, therapists that you work with or believe in, or treatment centers, or different options so that people can know that they don't have to do this on their own. Uh, and uh, oftentimes the best thing we can do is point them in the right direction if we don't have the answer. And of course the irony is, based on just some of the, the broad definitions that you've shared with us tonight, I think uh, many pastors would maybe uh, be surprised to find out that many of these so-called addicts are sitting in the church pews right now. Now, they, this may not be the guy that has, you know, the mainline heroin addiction or is, is you know, diving into a bottle of vodka every night, perhaps not at the extremes, but there's all kinds of, of signs of addictive behavior uh, that can have negative consequences on uh, your, certainly your spiritual health, your relationships with your spouse, your children, etc. So it would seem to me when you talk about 30% of Americans that deal with one degree of addiction or another, that a good percentage of them are already in the pews and this kind of addictive behavior is going on rest. Well, you know, what, what about the woman who can't go to sleep at night without uh, her two milligram uh, Xanax, which on the street is called a Xanny bar. Uh, but if you get it from the uh, pharmacist, it's called a two milligram tablet of Xanax. Or the man who has to take his oxycodone uh, to get to work and has to take it throughout the day because of his car wreck and he can't function without the painkillers. Uh, you know, these are very... Uh, powerful narcotics that our doctors prescribe and oftentimes we have people sitting in our pews who have become dependent on these uh, medications these narcotic medications and can't get off and don't know where to turn 
Is part of the, the first step here to start destigmatizing a lot of this? Because you say addiction, and that, and that sounds like somebody has just got this, uh, you know, deep, dark, evil, ugly secret. And yet, you know, when we start to look at some of these definitions, we begin to realize that this is more widespread and more common than we realize. I think one of the places the church can start is to uh, really have a, an honest discussion about the difference between guilt and shame. And we like to say, you know, guilt, guilt is when I feel bad about what I did. But shame is when I feel bad about who I am. Now, if we believe what St. Paul wrote, as you said, that we are new creations in Christ, we are not bad. We are, we are good people who are struggling sometimes with some bad things. And so separating identity from behavior is very helpful in destigmatizing addiction. So saying to the person, you know, you might even want to say you're a person with addiction. I work with people who they can't handle that label of addict because it's too self-defeating for them. Other people are okay with it. Uh, You know, say, well, you're a person with alcoholism. You're a person whose drinking has taken over. Separating the behavior from actually who the person is. Uh, is what the church can help with in terms of the spiritual healing process. Sometimes, of course, the big challenge here is just coming to grips with the face of who we really are. You know, there's that mask that I think we not only put on in in, in front of others, but sometimes even that that mask is apparent in the mirror, isn't it? We kind of fool ourselves. Well, uh, we we like denial, and I think it's human nature. Um, I think it's the ego. I think it's the sin nature of the flesh or whatever you want to call it. We like to think that uh, we're, we're doing okay, and sometimes it's hard to take an honest look in the mirror to say, uh, to really give an honest inventory of, of how, I, how I really am doing. Let's slip a caller or two here uh, real quick before the end of our conversation. We're going to jump over to Oakland and say good evening to Eleanor. Eleanor, come on in with your comment or question for Jonathan Benz. Hi, good evening, gentlemen. And first, I'd like to say I really am thankful that you're having this conversation. Um, I just have a comment and maybe a little bit of a question. My comment is that several years ago, I started a uh, substance abuse recovery ministry in my church. But first, before we actually got the group started, uh, we actually partnered with uh, our local mental health association and we actually got uh, professionals to come in and give us an overview about um, the pharmacology of addiction as well as the sociology of addiction. Once we got that information, I was able to talk with my pastor, get him on board with it, and actually um, the members of our recovery group came basically right out of our congregation as we began to do it more and more and months passed by we were able to even invite some of the family members of people who were uh, in recovery and we also use Bible and we also use prayer and and um, just a number of different things so uh, how do you think about uh, churches partnering with other churches and partnering with other um, a community uh, mental health association. Some really good questions, and it sounds like you're doing some really good work there, too. Jonathan, what do you think? Eleanor, I love it. Yes, yes, and yes. That, that was a great approach. Uh, well done in partnering and bringing in good information to the congregation and also working with your pastor. 
You know, oftentimes we don't deal with things in our churches until there's a felt need. So when there's a crisis, we then respond. Uh, and so including the leadership and saying, hey, uh, you know, we're not a, a silo here. We're not a reservoir. We're a river. And uh, we're going to allow the information and the healing to flow. And sometimes we got a partner with other people to provide optimal healing for our parishioners. And, you know, there's so many organizations out there that you can partner with so that you don't have to sort of do all the heavy lifting and, you know, re- reinvent the wheels, so to speak. More and more churches, for example, are, are discovering uh, the ministry of Celebrate Recovery. Uh, and, and that has been exploding, perhaps not as fast as we, we'd love to see, but that's been exploding across the country. So this idea of whether you're partnering with another congregation or, or taking advantage of some of the resources, as uh, Eleanor just mentioned, that, that already exist to say, hey, what can we do to be more effective in our local ministry? And I love the fact that they recognize, gee, we've got some folks right here in our congregation that are already struggling. Thank you. We appreciate the call tonight, Eleanor. Uh, Jonathan, I know we've just kind of scratched the surface here this evening, but for for others out there that are eavesdropping on the conversation, heard what you've had to share, heard what the caller just had to share, where would you recommend they take some some important first steps? Well, I think we have to ask. Now, I always tell people, be careful who you tell your story to. Not everyone has earned the right to hear your story. So when you go for help, make sure that you're going to someone who you are somewhat confident that they can help point you in the right direction if they don't have the answers themselves. So hopefully your your pastor or an elder in the congregation or a lay leader or a therapist or someone in the community, uh, you know, but first you have to ask. Uh, and that that's what we all have to do. When we're recognizing that we have a problem, we have to ask for help. If we don't ask for help, we'll never uh, get the help that we need, that we so desperately need. And, of course, in terms of resources, I mentioned Celebrate Recovery, and also a copy of Jonathan's new book might be very helpful to you, too. It's called The Recovery-Minded Church, Loving and Ministering to People with Addiction, newly published by InterVarsity. You can get it on uh, the web, of course, the usual suspects, Amazon.com, local uh, bookstores, and RecoveryPlace.com. That's RecoveryPlace.com. And our thanks to Jonathan Benz for being with us on this segment of Lifeline. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. The fifth column, it was called during World War II, the secretive, subversive underground saboteur bent on destroying the so-called enemy on his home territory. It took place in many nations, certainly throughout the world, most notably throughout many parts of Europe, but even here in the United States, there were concerns about the so-called damage potentially of the fifth column during World War II. While times might have changed, to be sure, in the ensuing 70-something years, the idea of bringing mayhem, destruction, and sabotage to the enemy on their home base has remained the same. Today, while we don't refer to them as fifth columnists, they are nevertheless subversives working in our own midst. Some might suggest it's part of the next wave of American-grown, American-born terrorists. As we mark this anniversary of the tragedy that was September 11th, 2001, we're joined by Catherine Herridge. She, of course, an award-winning broadcast journalist and Fox News correspondent, the author of a number of best-selling books, including her latest, The Next Wave, On the Hunt for Al-Qaeda's American Recruits. And Catherine, thanks so much for taking time to be with us today. Craig, it's an honor to be with you today. Thank you for having me. You know, it's amazing. We, we think of fifth columnists related to the Second World War and the concerns about the possibility of sabotage 
espionage taking place here in America at the hands of either uh, Japanese or the Italians or the Germans, participants in World War II. Largely most of that forgotten. Today, though, it seems as if in a lot of quarters, the idea of having to be worried about fifth columnists in our midst for a more modern terrorist attack on the United States is not as largely on the radar screen as perhaps it ought to be. Why is that? Well, I think with bin Laden's death, many people felt that perhaps this was the end of the war uh, against radical Islam. But what I lay out in this book, The Next Wave, is that in fact this next chapter may be even harder to fight because Americans are now front and center among these Al-Qaeda recruits. I call them Al-Qaeda 2.0. These are people who are born here and raised here. They understand us and they also unfortunately understand how to use our systems against us. And since January of 2009, what I lay out in the book is that there's been a case of homegrown terrorism with a link to an international group every two to three weeks. So the numbers are really there in a way that we just didn't anticipate. 10 years ago. Let's talk a bit about the notion of why someone here in the United States, um, either naturalized or U.S. born, would even be interested in aligning with what is clearly our enemy. Uh, We know, Catherine, certainly going back to 2001, that people like the so-called American Taliban, Johnny Walker Lind, who live right here in the San Francisco Bay Area, in fact, that there are those that that find this sort of, I don't know whether it's an appeal to those that that are disenfranchised with what's going on in the nation, they're doing it for religious reasons, whatever the motivation might be, that there are those out there that exist. But why do we see so many numbers of them? Well, that's an excellent question. Uh, Based on my reporting, I think there are two explanations. Uh, First and foremost, back in 2006, the al-Qaeda leadership made a policy decision to really change their strategy. They saw that U.S. law enforcement was aggressively looking at young Muslim men from the Middle East, also Afghanistan and Pakistan. So they said, okay, we're going to think out of the box now, and we're going to try and recruit Americans with clean passports and clean backgrounds, so no criminal record, and we're also going to go after Western Europeans because U.S. law enforcement is not looking at these people aggressively, and they can travel in and outside of the United States with ease. The second thing that's happened is what I call the digital jihadists. These are people who use social networking to spread this ideology of hate. So whether they're emailing or blogging or Skyping, they're kind of like the Facebook friend from hell. And the person who is really the master at this is actually an American. He was born in New Mexico, Anwar Al-Awlaki, and he's now hiding in Yemen. He is someone who's been very successful at inspiring American citizens. He was someone who grew up here. He speaks just like an American, into buying into al-Qaeda's message. Here's someone, too, that allegedly has strong ties back to the events of September the 11th. I'm glad you raised that. One of the things in the book, and I just want to say out of the gate to your listeners, I didn't write this book to impress people inside the Beltway. I really wrote it um, for anyone to pick up and go behind the scenes of our investigation, and we connect the dots together as we travel from Gitmo to San Diego to Fort Hood and then on to Virginia. And what I lay out in the book is that this American, Anwar Al-Awlaki, had contact with three of the five hijackers on Flight 77 that hit the Pentagon, and that, in fact, his contacts with the hijackers were not a series of coincidences, which is the popular narrative in the mainstream media, but, in fact, it was really evidence of a very, uh, you know, uh, uh, purposeful relationship, and that, in fact, it's it's hard to argue that he was not al-Qaeda from the beginning. Wow. Yeah, I mean, I know it is a bit of a wow, and I think that as we approach the 10th anniversary of 9-11, that we're going to have a, I would call it sort of a historical 
revision or rethinking of what the plot actually was. What I show in my book and in the research we've done at Fox is that it wasn't four teams of foreign hijackers. There was, in fact, a fifth team or a fifth cell. This was a support network within the United States that in some cases had been here for decades to facilitate the hijackers. And at the center of that was this American Anwar al-Awlaki. It's amazing because we hear some of the, the conspiracy theorists out there, Catherine, that want to come up with elaborate ideas of how sometimes or somehow the United States was involved in this, the CIA, the Bush administration, you know, whatever the nonsense excuse might be. Largely, I think, to try and explain away how they were able to orchestrate something as large and technically complex as what they were able to execute on September the 11th. But maybe what you're suggesting is the reason why they were as successful as they were is because there was an on-ground, in-country support team, perhaps long before the 19 subversives made their way into our country for a variety of reasons on a variety of, of visas to uh, to make their presence felt here, that uh, there is um, perhaps some very deep roots behind all of this. And sadly, some of the roots have names and U.S. passports. Yeah, that's, look, that's an excellent question. There's no, there's no doubt in my mind, based on the two-year investigation that we did here at Fox, that there was, in fact, a domestic support network that helped the hijackers stay under the radar for the September 11th attacks. And let's just, let me give you one example. Um, the, the first two hijackers into the United States were very important to the plot because they were like the beachhead, and they arrived in January of 2000. Their names were Nawafal Hazmi and Khalid Almadar. They're not household names, but they were battle-trained operatives. And I know investigators with the 9-11 Commission were always puzzled by this because both men had never been to the United States before, and they spoke virtually no English. Yet once they arrived in the United States at LAX, they made a beeline not only to San Diego, but the ghetto in San Diego. And they thought that only makes sense if there's, in fact, someone there to meet them. And what I lay out in this book, The Next Wave, is that that someone was the American Anwar Alalaki. And he then travels to Falls Church, Virginia. And guess what? The hijackers also show up in Falls Church, Virginia. Phone records tie the hijackers in various parts of the United States to that mosque in Falls Church, Virginia. The phone records that tie that same mosque to one of the 9-11 conspirators in Hamburg, Germany. These are, this is not a series of coincidences. This is really evidence of a concrete relationship that was designed to help these 19 men stay under the radar, and at the heart of it was an American who knew how to game the system against us. Here's what I find troubling about the scenario that you're painting, a truth be told here, Catherine, and that is this, that you're suggesting that there is a very complex web here that is intricate at many, many layers going back over many, many years that allowed the events of September 11th to unfold. And the very title of your book, The Next Wave, suggesting that we're not out of danger, are we? I think that the threat we face in the future um, is more diverse than what we faced a decade ago. On September 11th, Al-Qaeda was like a Fortune 500 company with bin Laden as the CEO. Now it's much more of a franchise operation. We have the traditional Al-Qaeda in Pakistan. We have these new affiliates in Yemen and Somalia, the group in Yemen where we have this American Alaki has been behind the last two major plots targeting the United States and the aviation industry. And then we have this homegrown component, the self-radicalized. So you have three threat streams that you're facing. And on the support network for 9-11, um, I know speaking to investigators, 
that we never fully identified the support network, the people who helped them. I'm not saying all these people had foreknowledge of September 11th, but they certainly helped these people operate inside the United States. We never identified this network, and you have to conclude for that reason that it was never fully disrupted and that some of these people remain here in the United States. And in our reporting at Fox, we've shown that, in fact, some of these people are still here. We put a lot of effort into trying to route out these terrorists in a variety of forms, in a variety of nations, but yet here at home in the United States, it's almost a lackadaisical attitude about this. And, and I say that because here we sit 10 years later, there are many detainees at Guantanamo Bay that are... He's still not yet on trial. Uh, Guantanamo Bay, that this administration promised in its first year they would shut down. These people have never been brought to trial. They've never had to answer for their crimes. There's never been a concerted, concentrated effort to try and route out any of the support network, either those that helped to facilitate 9-11 or what might exist today. And then, too, maybe setting up this environment, Catherine, where there's a sense of, uh, you know, justice delayed, justice denied. I don't need to worry about it. Look, if we look at the end of World War II, and I made references to that at at the beginning of my conversation with you today, Uh, we understand that we saw the end of the war in Europe in May of 1945, the end of the war in in Asia and Japan in August of 1945, and by November of 1945, the Nuremberg trials were up and running. And by October of 46, the trials were over, the decisions had been handed down, and those that had to be held accountable for their war crimes during the Second World War in Europe were, in fact, held accountable. Here we sit a decade later following some pretty heinous crimes that were committed against the people of the United States, over 3,000 people dying on American soil in September of 2001, and yet no trials and very few brought to justice. I think it's one of the most unfortunate elements of the anniversary that there is yet to be a trial for the five nine eleven suspects either in a federal court or at Guantanamo Bay. And I'm one of the few reporters who's been in that military courtroom with them. And if I could just take a minute to tell you one anecdote, I think it will really tell you all you need to know about these men. It was one of the last court appearances for the 9-11 suspects before President Obama put the process on hold for this uh, review into closing Guantanamo. And only three of the five men bothered to show up for court that day. Khalid Sheikh Mohammed, the self-described architect of 9-11, sent word to the court that he would just rather sleep, not even come to court. And one of the men who was there, uh, his name is Wally Benatash. He's not a household name, but his family and the Bin Laden family have been friends for many, many years. And in that court, he took this legal pad and he made a paper airplane and he shot it at one of his co-conspirators, Al Bellucci. And I saw Bellucci open up the plane and both men started laughing. There was clearly something written inside of that paper airplane. And I later learned through a legal contact that inside that plane, Benatash had written either the flight numbers for 9-11 or the tail numbers for those jets. Mm. And just the image of uh, Guantanamo Bay, the military courtroom, the 9-11 suspects, a paper airplane, and those flight numbers, I mean, for me, this was a real darkness, uh, a real window onto who these people uh, really are. And one of the things I write about in the book is that I really wish people who made decisions on how to handle uh, the 9-11 suspects and other Al-Qaeda members could just go sit in that courtroom for half an hour and get a sense of who these people really are. And they are, you know, they're not like us. Eight years later, they were mocking us, our efforts to try and give them a fair trial, and they were mocking the victims of September 11th. And let's not forget how some of those people died. Some of those people died because they jumped to their deaths from the Twin Tower because they preferred that 
to being burned alive in this building. And that sense of looking into the face of evil. It has that, you know, it has that sense. People have, have said that to me, and many people who have picked up the book, um, and I sort of take this as the ultimate compliment. It's not what they expected, because it kind of reads like an action adventure. But these scenes at Guantanamo Bay, when I take you inside the courtroom with the 9-11 suspects, are very surprising, uh, and they're very angry. And a lot of people have said to me that it's really changed them and their view uh, on the terrorism problem. Catherine Heritage with us today. She, of course, is an award-winning broadcast journalist, the author of a number of best-selling books. Her latest book is called The Next Wave on the Hunt for Al-Qaeda's American Recruits. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. Welcome back to this very special tribute edition of Lifeline. I'm Craig Roberts. As we mark this anniversary of the tragedy that was September 11th, 2001, we're joined by Catherine Herridge. She, of course, an award-winning broadcast journalist and Fox News correspondent, the author of a number of best-selling books, including her latest, The Next Wave, On the Hunt for Al-Qaeda's American Recruits. And is there a sense, perhaps here, Catherine, of a lack of resolve to try and bring these people to trial and ultimately to to justice that not only gives them a sense of being emboldened, but but also puts us at higher risk. Again, that notion of justice delayed, justice denied. You know, there was a very strong message that the Allies wished to communicate on the heels of World War II that the magnitude of the crimes against humanity that were committed by the Germans needed to be brought to justice swiftly and surely. It's almost here as if we're treating the events of September 2001 as if it was no big deal, inconsequential. Well, just over the last weekend, I uh, went and visited a 9-11 family that I've come to know over the years through my reporting, and uh, one of them said to me, uh, this is going to be a very hard anniversary. Uh, They said September 11th is always a very hard day for us for obvious reasons, but they just never imagined uh, 10 years ago that we would be in this place where no one had been brought to justice for these crimes. Um, The 9-11 case is an extremely complicated case, um, in large part because these five men were held in the CIA uh, detention program, the secret prisons, and I've always felt that the trial of these men will really be a trial within a trial about the CIA program. So it's a hard case to bring, but that doesn't mean we shouldn't try and bring it, and we shouldn't have already brought that, that case. Then you have to wonder, what do we need to do to get this thing jump-started? I mean, we look at issues of the enemy amongst us, the the delay in bringing any of those that we've been holding, quite frankly, for a decade now, to trial. That sense of giving aid and comfort, I think, to the enemy, too, Catherine, amongst us, in that there's a sense that we're we're not taking this seriously, uh, that there's not a huge risk here, and at the speed and rate in which we're moving, they could, in fact, potentially be planning right now to perpetrate something on us that maybe will escape the detection uh, of the CIA and the FBI and others responsible for monitoring the so-called chatter on these websites. Uh, and, you know, it, it only needs to take one to slip through in order to be successful. And I, and I guess that's part of the problem here, too. We boast about the number of ones that we catch, but it only takes one to slip through to have an impact. Well, I don't think many people realize uh, how close we've come, even just in the last three years. Uh, I confirmed recently through one of my intelligence contacts that the uh, attempted underwear bombing on Christmas Day in 2009, that that device actually did detonate, but the reason the explosives did not ignite is because the explosives were damp, because the young Nigerian man had been wearing the device for nearly 24 hours. So that was... 
I mean, that was a lot of luck, unfortunately. And then just last fall, the same group, uh, the Al-Qaeda group in Yemen, tried to send these cargo printer bombs into the United States with the goal of blowing up the aircraft uh, over the United States. And one of those devices, um, we asked the British to screen it. They screened it. They said they found they found nothing. They were ready to let that package go until the U.S. insisted that they screen it again, and that's when they found the bomb. So that's a that's a second time, and I think people are unaware uh, of the extent that we've been very lucky, and I also think they're unaware to the extent Al Qaeda has really cleverly thought out of the box and gone after American citizens because they understand that it's very hard for us to put our own citizens under the microscope because we have freedoms and protections in our country. I mean, that's one of the great things about the United States, but it's those very freedoms and those very protections that make it hard to look at people who may be al-Qaeda sympathizers within the United States. And this was really this was really by design. There's no question about that based on my reporting. Does this mean ultimately we need to double down our efforts, not to suggest that we should go back to some of the things that we saw as complaints about the way America managed the sabotage threat to our security here at home during World War II, but is there necessarily a need to revisit the totality of how we're managing not only bringing very well-known criminals, uh, terrorists to justice or failing to do so, along with sort of the lackadaisical atmosphere that I'm going to suggest, Catherine, is creating an atmosphere that would encourage enemies of the United States to try another attack on us just because there's such a lackadaisical approach that we're taking. I, if I could take my reporter's hat off for a moment, what I would say is I think it may be time to really have a national discussion or debate um, about what the future of terrorism looks like and the likelihood of what I would describe as small-scale or medium-scale attacks where we may find American citizens uh, or naturalized citizens uh, at the heart of it. Um, look, I don't think we want to so fundamentally change the way that we live that we have the government so in our business that we're going to prevent everything, right? Because that's kind of a win for al-Qaeda, too. I mean, one of their goals is to make us change change the way that we live our lives. So if we're not willing to do that, we have to have a discussion about the likelihood of these types of attacks and that that may be part of the price we pay in the future because the al-Qaeda problem is not going away. In fact, I believe it's becoming harder to fight because of the emergence of these American operatives and that as a country, we're not going to constantly contort when there's a near miss or there's an event because that's what we seem to do in all of these cases. And that gives these groups an even bigger victory, if you will. It is a book that will open up the window into what has been happening in the United States in relationship to dealing with these terrorists over the last decade. And then most importantly, a stern warning about the future. Catherine Herridge, the book is called The Next Wave on the Hunt for Al-Qaeda's American Recruits. Catherine, as always, a delight and an education to have you with us. Thanks so much for the time. Thanks for such great questions. I always enjoy the conversation. Thank you. Well, that's going to do it for this edition of Lifeline. Thanks so much for being with us. And if there was anything you heard on today's show that you'd like to hear again or share with a friend, grab a copy of the Lifeline podcast. Simply log on to KFAX.com. That's KFAX.com for the Lifeline podcast. Our producer is Wanda Sanchez. I'm Craig Roberts. Till next time around, remember, just don't keep the faith. Get out there and share it and make it a great evening. So long. Opinions expressed in the preceding program do not necessarily represent the views of the ownership, staff, or management of KFAX. Copyright Salem Communications, all rights reserved.
three-star general, Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.